Hey there, and welcome to the Jimmy's Table podcast at jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey. I'm curiously evangelical, politically homeless, and a dreamer of small things. On this podcast, I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. So if you have honest questions, aren't afraid to have difficult conversations, and want to have a little fun along the way, then pull up a chair. This podcast is for you. So today's episode 160 of the jimmystable.com podcast, and I'm going to get into something kind of personal. I'm going to talk about why I didn't go into the ministry after I went to Bible college and seminary. Before I get into today's episode, I kind of want to give a little bit of a disclaimer here. I first off want to say I have nothing but respect and high regard for those who are serving in quote-unquote the ministry today. They are members of my family, friends, and brothers and sisters in Christ, and people I go to church with. Today's podcast is simply an attempt to explain why I chose not to pursue a career in ministry, even though I went to Bible college and seminary, and even though I continue to be a highly involved uh, church member and volunteer in whatever church I happen to belong to. Um, So I thought that it's important to say this up front, Lest anybody think I'm trying to say something that sounds disrespectful because this ultimately involves some criticism um, regarding the profession of people that I know personally and uh, genuinely love and care for. Uh, My hope today is simply to explain why I chose not to go into the ministry. Um, Simply because, well, a lot of people have been asking me about that recently. And it's not something I've talked a lot about over the years. Um, So I thought it's worth doing a podcast about. So here it goes. Shortly after being saved, when I was about 17 years old, I felt compelled to be involved in the life of the church and to, to go into ministry. As a result of feeling compelled to go into ministry, I went to Bible college at Lee University, um, which is affiliated with the Pentecostal denomination known as the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. And I also went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which is an evangelical seminary of which Billy Graham was on the the board. (laughs) Um, And over the years, so I went to Bible college, I went to seminary, I was involved in the church, and I've even been invited over the years, last so recently, um, to be a, a, a speaker at a handful of churches. Um, I volunteered for a lot of different things. I've been in the pulpit quite a few times, um, and I've even performed a wedding. The only thing I've not performed is a baptism and a funeral, and I uh, wouldn't mind performing a baptism, but I'm glad I've never performed a, a funeral. Uh, I'm very glad about that. That's just not something that I, I'm just like, ooh, no, that's not something I want to do. Um, but so that's, that's basically my general history. But it gets a little more complicated. So eventually, you know, this, this Bible college and seminary stuff and, and pursuing of ministry and involvement of ministry kind of came into a climax when I was in my early to mid-20s. I was previously engaged in, in, in Bible college to a woman um, who wanted to get ordained and licensed and credentialed in the denomination that we were a part of. Um, I had wanted to at one point as well, but ultimately, I just 
couldn't do it. A lot of complicated reasons as to why, but here's the general gist. Part of it was theological, out of theological convictions over what I considered minor points of disagreement of doctrine that I had with the denomination at the time. I didn't consider them major, um, but the denomination I was with definitely did. And I'd be willing to say that, you know, even the pastor of the church I was involved with, while he respectfully disagreed over my particular point of contention with the denomination's statement of faith um, on just one particular point, I continued to be regularly invited to preach uh, in that church. Um, and I just never talked about that particular issue per se, or I never directly talked about that issue per se. I might allude to it or talk about it when I wasn't asked to speak in a pulpit. Uh, and that primarily for those of you who really want to know. Um, Pentecostals believe that when you get filled with the Spirit, when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, that the, the initial physical evidence of that experience is the speaking of in other tongues. Um, and I contended, even though I considered myself very much a Pentecostal, um, and still very much consider myself a Pentecostal at heart, um, that even one can have this experience, I contend, and not necessarily speak in tongues. I consider it within the realm of possibility, but I don't think it is something that the scriptures demand happen every single time. And if it doesn't happen, then you can't say that you had the experience. Um, their contention was every single time it happens, it must happen that you speak in tongues. Um, I would sit there and say, well, you could get baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and maybe you would speak in tongues. Well, that maybe was kind of a deal breaker for them. Um, so that would ultimately keep me being able to sign off on the statement of faith, 100% in good faith. Um, and as a result, I wouldn't be able to get ordained in the denomination. Um, which, you know, became problematic for the relationship that I was in. And ultimately, that relationship ended uh, shortly after uh, college. But, you know, also part of the consideration why I ultimately didn't pursue ordination in that denomination, even though I had wanted to at one point, um, ultimately became because of the culture of that denomination. I just wasn't a good fit for it. And and I feel if that particular denomination, if you weren't born into that denomination, and I mean like born like cut your teeth on the backs of the pews when you were a small child, <laughs> and you didn't have family who did that at least one generation before, I just felt like culturally I wasn't a good fit because there was very much a good old boy network sort of things. And they were very much concerned about pedigree and they really didn't entirely trust people who didn't have that heritage of faith uh, that they so proudly proclaim uh, themselves as having whenever they, <laughs> uh, you know, talk about themselves as a denomination or talk about their spiritual uh, past and where they came from. It's, it's a huge thing. Well, ultimately, I didn't really have that connection, even though my older brother is a pastor in this particular denomination, and through his uh, grandparents and, and through my mom, he did at one point have this heritage of faith, um, but uh, that was never me. My mom didn't go to that church uh, when I was younger, and at the same time, uh, his grandparents are my grandparents. Um, well, technically my older brother is my half-brother, so half his grandparents are my grandparents, but the other half aren't. 
Um, <laughs> and it's his uh, grandparents on his father's side that gave him that heritage. And even though my grandparents, our mutual grandparents, um, had that connection for a brief period of time, they weren't wed to the denomination in the same way that his grandparents were. So I was kind of viewed as a Johnny-come-lately, and because I could be a little bit outspoken, as, as I tend to still be a little bit outspoken, um, and being that I was willing to raise questions about points of doctrine that were settled um, and other things like that, it just, at the end of the day, me and the denomination just weren't a good fit. And I don't mean them any bad blood by it. Um, you know, I, I do think some of that denomination is little bit backwards, if I, if I can say so today, especially um, speaking from the vantage point of the denomination I'm currently affiliated with, that is a lot more, I would personally say, healthy as a culture. Um, but I digress. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not having this podcast today to harp about the denomination and any grievances that I may have with it. At the end of the day, we just weren't a good fit, and I probably shouldn't have you know, ultimately been trying to spend so much time in the denomination that I was once I realized that we just weren't going to work out. Um, you know, but I was young, I was mature, I loved Jesus, and the church I was involved with was a, it was a pretty good little Pentecostal church. It had some wonderful saints. Uh, the pastor there, uh, he, he was a good pastor. I really appreciated him. Um, and I really appreciated a number of people uh, in that particular church. Um, it was great. I had a good time there, and I'm thankful for the experiences that I had and the opportunities that I had to serve while there. But eventually, I found myself in the need to move on, and, and I did. But I also realized in, in all this, you know, festering of stuff with the denomination over theology and culture, I also realized at the time, you know, there was a problem with me. There was a problem with me. And I don't know, maybe still some of the problem is with me. <laughs> uh, but I did a lot of soul searching, soul searching, and I've always taken my faith in the Lord as a very serious thing. I know one day that I'm going to have to give an account for every idle word and every thought and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And so when I read passages like the qualifications set for a pastor or elder, as you find in passages such as 1 Timothy chapter 3, that while I was in my early mid-twenties, that while I considered myself a pretty strong Christian and righteous guy who loved Jesus and the church, you know, when I sat there and read through the passage of First Timothy chapter 3, I was just like, you know, as, as great as I am as a guy, as much as I love Jesus, man, I still had a lot of maturing to do. And I didn't become a Christian until I was 17, um, so a lot of this stuff that I'm learning is still, even though I went to Bible college and seminary to learn it at a very high level, you know, when it came to practical application on, on some of the things and just the spirit of which I had and the, the mindset that I had, I realized that, you know, I just don't possess the spiritual maturity yet in order to, to go into the ministry. I just don't. And that was a hard thing to do. But it was something I ultimately had to confess of myself. And because I fear the Lord and love Him and His church, I just decided that while I could be involved in the life of the church, you know, I just couldn't bring myself to say, you know, I should be running this place. <laughs> I should be in charge here. Because you sit there and think about it, like at 25 years old or whatever I was roughly at the time in my early mid-20s, 
It's kind of like, you know, that's not an uncommon age for a lot of ministers to venture off into the ministry. I've known people as young as 19, 20, 21 years old becoming pastors of churches. Um, and I could sit here and still say at age 25, no, I'm not ready. I barely even know what planet I'm living on. <laughs> um, and that's not because I was living a wild lifestyle or out there wanting to sow some wild oats. I just, I read the passage of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and I was like, you know, I just don't fit this yet. I still have some growing to do. And as a result, I'm not going to actively pursue pastoral ministry as, as a result. And in case you're wondering what 1 Timothy 3 says, in case you're not familiar with it, 1 Timothy 3 says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, or as we interpret today, pastor, elder, and a number of other thing, titles we might throw at it, depending on our denominational theological framework and interpretation of the passage. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, it says, If any man aspires the office of an overseer or pastor, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, skillful in teaching, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, but gentle, not contentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and a snare of the devil. Well, you know, when I went through this list, I could check a lot of the boxes. I could sit there and say, yeah, you know, I'm a man who, who's above the reproach. Nobody can accuse me of wrongdoing. They may accuse me of a lot of things. Uh, and be in a certain way, but they definitely no. But people have seldom ever accused me of of wrongdoing. I was definitely very um, strong in my character in that regard. But you know, I was you know not such a gentle guy, and I could be a bit on the contentious side. And to some degree, those are still some things that you know I look at myself, and honestly, I sit there and think I'm not a hundred percent where I want to be on those either. And even though I think I'm a lot better uh, today and that I'm probably well enough that if I wanted to serve as a quote-unquote pastor uh, today, that I could probably be one. I, th I think I have grown a lot in, in being gentle and not contentious, um, especially for those of you who knew me when I was younger. Uh, you knew what a bull in the china shop that I could be. And while I still might have moments of, uh, you know, flair and flavor, and color, <laughs> and the way I talk, and the way I behave, um, I definitely say a lot of that has been squeezed out of me, uh, and I, I have been greatly refined in my character, uh, partially because of age, um, but partially because I've had to face some really hard life stuff that I didn't have to face when I was younger, um, and you know, I felt like I could just shoot off my mouth anytime I wanted to when I was younger and say exactly what I wanted to say when I wanted to say it without any rep care for the repercussions of it and, and making a point and scoring wins. Like, I used to be very much that way. And I'm not going to say that I don't occasionally indulge in such things from time to time now. 
And you know, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this passage that you have to perfectly adhere to this and that you have to be completely devoid of anything that could even remotely smell of being not gentle or con- not contentious and, and things like that. Um, but I think most people today would say that, you know, I'm a pretty good in this category, but I'm not going to pretend to speak for other people. Um, I would just simply say that, you know, I think most people, I think most people, if they read first Timothy chapter three and then read me, uh, they'd probably be perfectly happy with me trying to live out first Timothy three in the, the role of a pastor. Right? I think, I think most people would probably be okay with that. Maybe not everybody, but I think, uh, those who know me well, would probably say, yeah, you know, Jimmy has been a great pastor to me um, at a personal level, um, and he's very much a person who's in keeping with the spirit of this passage, so uh, I vote for Jimmy. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, there's that. But, you know, some of the issues I also faced, not only when it came to clashes with the denomination or some soul-searching over my personal character, I think some of the issues, and it actually kind of continues to be an issue today, um, that I would, you know, definitely feel like, you know, something that keeps me from being able to go into to the ministry today. Even though, you know, I'm as I get older, I become more open to the idea. Uh, sometimes I sit there and think, you know, maybe I should give up this mortgage underwriting stuff. Uh, maybe I should enter into the ministry and become a pastor all over again, or try to become one all over again. I don't know. I wrestle with that. Um, but then I pause because some of the issues that prevents me from wanting to go into what we conceive as the ministry today happens to be related to structural issues related to the modern American church and what the modern American church envisions pastoral ministry to ultimately be. In America today, it's expected that the pastor is someone that is more than simply a shepherd who lives an exemplary life and models for others what the Christian life is supposed to be and teaches teaches other people how to follow Jesus just like he does along the way. That's essentially what the ministry, if you study closely in the New Testament, what the ministry looked like. The ministry was simply men who shared their lives in Christ with others, who taught other people how to be Christians just like they were Christians and what they knew of the gospel, um, and to share Jesus, to impart a, a sense of their life, um, and to live in such a way so that other people could say, yeah, that's somebody I can model myself after because they model their life after Jesus. And if you study the Apostle Paul and his writings, that's pretty much what ministry was. It was simply going around, sharing your faith, teaching others to be like Jesus modeling the same behavior of what it meant to live like Jesus um, and teaching other people how to teach other people to do the same. And that was the ministry of the New Testament that we read about. Whether, whether we were talking about apostles or prophets, evangelists or pastors and teachers, you know, that was, that's essentially what the ministry of the church primarily was. Whatever your specific gifting or calling was, that's how you were to ultimately live your life out. And that's how you were to live out your ministry Um, It was a very organic, sort of relational sort of thing. But today, but today in America, a pastor is very different than that. 
Today's church in America, a pastor is expected to be a visionary CEO leader that leads a thriving, world-changing organization who, while also doing this, goes up on top of the mountain to talk with God, then come back down the mountain to talk with the people. And he plays this quote-unquote man of God sort of persona, uh, and he strives to preach the best sermon of the world every single week for his people. And I know that's kind of a hyperbolic <laughs> idea of, of what uh, you know ministry is conceived of as today when I say these things. But essentially, that's what it all ultimately boils down to. No matter what denomination, no matter what church you're being affiliated with, um, non-denominational, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, uh, what have you, it's all more or less kind of flowing in this same sort of stream. Um, and even though some churches may stay away better from it than others regarding the pastor being the CEO or the pastor being a Moses-type figure, at the end of the day, no matter what structure changes a lot of churches try to make, whether it's an Episcopal style, a Presbyterian style, a free church style, or, or what have you, congregational style, it all kind of still gravitates towards this. And I think that's a distinctly American thing, per se, I, I believe. But at the same time, I'm not so sure that it's a distinctly American thing. I, there's, there's always been this Old Testament sense of which the nation of Israel always wanted a king to rule over them instead of God. They always wanted a Moses on the mountaintop figure. So while it's a distinctly American thing, at the same time, I think it's a distinctly human thing. There's just this unbaptized nature of things that we bring to the church, this baggage that we bring to the church, to the, church the cultural expectations. Even for somebody who's never even darkened the door of a church in their entire life, or heard the gospel preached. I bet if you were to put, uh, you know, the most, you know, just backwards heathen in a church today, <laughs> they would still have an expectation because of what's primed in our culture of what's supposed to happen when you're there. Um, and while you're there, even if they know nothing of Jesus or the gospel and have no biblical-based criticism to offer, there would still be a certain expectation that the church would be structured and governed in a certain way and that you would have certain people who essentially put on the show week after week. Um, and so you have these pastors who must be the CEO. You have these pastors who must be the man of God. But then you also have this other stuff. You have this need that the pastor basically be a quasi-therapist for people in crisis, and then he must also be there to perform weddings, funerals, baptisms, and serve communion. And you know, when you get right down to it, get right down to it, and this is a hard thing that I think maybe some degree some pastors don't realize, but I think if, you were to be on, if they were to be honest and open with their congregants and, and say a lot of things about a lot of things, but I'm going to sit here and say it, because uh, I've been the one who's talked to some pastors, people who are both pastors today and former pastors, you know, when you examine the, the pages of the New Testament, you'll find this visionary CEO, man of God, guy who performs all the quasi-therapist uh, for people in crisis, weddings, funerals, baptisms, and serving communion thing. You'll find that most of this activity that pastors are expected to perform today have very little to nothing to actually do with the ministry that we see 
on the pages of the New Testament. Indeed, if you were to study the pages of the New Testament carefully, you'd find of what we conceive as the ministry today has little to do with anything that the Jesus that Jesus and the apostles or their churches ever thought or conceived of as ministry. Yet, for all those young men and women who answer the call and say, I believe God's calling me to preach, I believe God's calling me to, to go into ministry, this is ultimately what churches hire ministers to do. Even though the institution as we conceive it and the job that they put out there to hire people for is far different than what the sense of calling that many young men and women feel in their hearts and ultimately respond to. And I don't think that any of them do this out of some sort of like, you know, bad reason. I, I believe that most, most people that I've ever talked to about feeling called to the ministry, um, they, they have a very sincere feeling about the entire thing. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, this involves a lot of very well-intentioned people answering the call to ministry by signing up for what amounts to another job description altogether. They might as well be like me, signing up to become a mortgage underwriter because the, the modern description and job expectations associated with the ministry today have almost little to nothing to do with ministry as we see it in the pages of the New Testament. So the job that they've signed up for the job that they have at the church, it's a job, and they're probably at some, at some level, you know, carrying out their calling as a minister of the gospel. But is it no wonder then that after so many years that ministers experience burnout and eventually quit and leave the ministry altogether? And I believe a lot of this has to do with the fact that the calling that they experienced and feel in their bones simply doesn't match the job description that they signed up for. And as a result, the job often ends up destroying the calling. And this happens as many pastors simply are pushed into ultimately conforming to and adapting to the thing that they were, in truth, never called to do. And many that I have known over the years, are very well aware of this. They're very well aware that the, the, the job description they signed up for is very different than what they read in the new pages of the New Testament, which is why they often spend such an inordinate amount of time reading things by like John Maxwell and the, and the like, all these leadership gurus, because, you know, they signed up for a job that didn't fit their calling, so they don't know what to do once they're there. And so as a result, they have to go buy all the books of all these leadership gurus who tell them how to run these world-class organizations, how to be the man on the mountaintop, how to conduct the weddings and funerals and baptisms and communions uh, and the church potluck at the same time. <laughs> but you know... They want to keep their careers. They want to continue to, to be in the ministry. And even though they feel this, this really strong sense of disconnect between the job and the ministry they were called to, they keep at it. And they ultimately jump through hoops. They play all the games. They put on the show. And while I believe many, if not most, though not all, do it largely from a sincere place of 
of wanting to love Jesus and to love others and to serve the Lord and the church and the furtherance of the gospel, they know at the end of the day that they, res- they spend a lot of time simply doing things they were never called to do. And they know they have a lot of people that they have to make happy while doing it. Lest the church ultimately find a reason to terminate their employing and their employment and their sense of calling. And ultimately, they become, whether they realize it or not, performers for the local church instead of servants of the Most High God. At the end of the day, pastors were never meant to be the center and life of the church, and that's what they've essentially become in the job description that they have today. And don't get me wrong, while I believe pastors are to be a vital part of the life of the church, you read the pages of the New Testament, you don't find too many mentions of them. (laughs) When Paul wrote his letters to the churches that he wrote, he always wrote it to the entire congregation. He didn't simply write it to the man of God, the CEO, the president, the Moses of the local congregation. He wrote his letters openly for all to read and to hear. Pastors were never meant to be the center and life of the church because at the end of the day, this is something I believe is crucial that we have forgotten and something that has floored me in the years that I've been in the church and something that gives me great cause and pause for everything today. Jesus Christ alone is called to be the head of the church. He alone is called to be our senior pastor. We are not. Yes, there might be a lot of men out there who have the, to- the title lead pastor, senior pastor, bishop, pope, or what have you. But Jesus Christ alone is our chief apostle and high priest. He alone is our chief shepherd, according to the scriptures. And so as a result, though, in spite of this being the case, a lot of pastors get hired to do that role that is ultimately designated to Jesus to do. And so there's a lot of pressure on them to be Jesus when they were never called to be Jesus. They were called to be the arms of Jesus. They were never called to be him. And so that ends up destroying a lot of men and a lot of women who go into the ministry out of a call and desire and passion uh, to help others and to serve others in the name of Christ. But then they enter to a job that Christ alone is supposed to happen, to, uh, or Christ alone is supposed to occupy, and then they end up doing a lot of things that ultimately have as much to do with Jesus as my job as a mortgage underwriter has to do with Jesus and the ministry of the church. For at the end of the day, the church is supposed to be a family, not a massive organization run by CEOs and their mid-level managers. Don't get me wrong, that's not to say the church doesn't have an organizational structure to it, or that it doesn't have to attend to business-related issues, such as as unavoidable as having to deal with organizational and business-related issues to a family. Every family has a structure, and every family has business needs at the end of the day. 
We ultimately have to engage in those things whether we like it or not. <laughs> but to me, it gets at the heart of the church because when you talk about the ministry today and how many pastors conceive it, especially in America, most pastors, they might, they might say the church is a family. They might say such. But have you noticed that we treat the church primarily not as a family, but as an organization? As if it's just some sort of corporation that does hiring and firing and, you know, has all sorts of things related to hiring and firing. <laughs> Churches with HR departments and managers and directors and all these sort of things. And then when we fire one of these guys, and we do fire them, you notice how they never stick around? They always go somewhere else. They go chase their calling and, and, and the money that goes with it, the ability to support themselves at some other church. And we always, almost always, import these leaders from afar. They always come from some other city or town or country or organization. And that whenever we replace one pastor, we replace him with a complete stranger who knows nothing of our church, who's, who has no family-type relationship with anybody there. He just becomes the next CEO. He just becomes the next person we hire to plug into the organizational hierarchy and the, the, the chain of command. And he's hired to do his job. And hopefully along the way, he makes friends and family with people and, and hopefully you know, the pastor ends up developing close um, relationships with the people of his congregation. But I would say, increasingly, that's, that's rare. I actually remember when I was in Bible college that uh, one of my professors, who had been a pastor for over 20 years, um, I remember him saying, I still remember it like it was yesterday, because this, this kind of frightened me. He had said in, 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 um, in class one day, he said in the 20 years he had been in ministry that never once did a single parishioner ever darken the door of his house. And he had his reasons for this because he wanted to keep his family life sacred from his duties as a church and he didn't want, um, he didn't want the interference of the organization interfering with his family relationship. He was a man who greatly cherished his family relationships and and I understand. But at the same time, the fact that he could sit there and make a division between the church and his family like that, and then to follow it up with, besides, if they really saw what I was like at home, they, I would lose the aura of the man of God that they see in the pulpit. So there was something about this man's life that even though you know, by all accounts, he, was, he seemed like he was a good man. He wasn't doing anything immoral. He was spoken of highly. You know, he was highly educated. Uh, a lot of people liked him and all that sort of stuff. But he felt the need to keep the family of the church away from his personal family and to keep people from seeing the type of life he actually lived as a person in his day-to-day -day life. Because he wanted to maintain the aura, the image of being the man of God. And this kind of disillusioned idea that he had 
associated with what it was supposed to, what it meant to be a pastor. Because he just thought he had to be the man of God and the head of the organization, and that's what God had called him to do. As a result, nobody knew what he was like as a real person. I got to see what he was like as a real person because I frequently would spend time with him and eat lunch with him and, and that sort of thing. And honestly, I could sit there and say, you know, as great as this particular guy was, I could definitely see why he kept people from afar because there were attitudes and mindsets that I believe he had that if the people of his church knew what he was really like, I could see why they may not like him as a pastor all of a sudden. And not because he, you know, again, was living some sort of, you know, immoral lifestyle or anything like that. But, you know, there was very much a real sense of which the job was just a profession for him. It's what he did for a living. Yeah, he did it for God. And, he, and I believe he loved the church. But there was this sense of which he still just was some guy doing his duty just the same way. I log into my computer at work every day and punch in mortgages, <laughs> you know, to where somehow he conceived that how he is in his personal life is completely separate from anything to do with his ministry. Yet, when you read the pages of the New Testament, you see individuals like Paul saying, you know what manner of man I was among you. You know how I lived my life. You saw as I ministered with my own hands to my own needs. And you saw as I wept daily, pleading with you about the, the issues of the gospel. And you saw the Apostle Paul being able to say so many times throughout the writings of the New Testaments to follow the example that they had in him because the life he was leaving was an imitation of Christ. Far from trying to keep people away from seeing what he was like in his personal life, individuals like the Apostle Paul were very open and transparent, willing to share their hearts their shortcomings with others just so that they might see Christ in them and learn what it was like to live a Christian life based off the type of life they themselves were living. But a lot of guys these days in the ministry, I will say, I know them. Good men, though, that they are. I think if they were to read 1 Timothy 3, if they were to read and conceive of what they know, the the, the qualifications and calling and duties and ministries of a pastor are supposed to be. I question how many of them would continue on in it today. But because they don't have to meet the burdens of 1 Timothy 3, because they don't have to follow the calling as outlined in the New Testament of what ministry is supposed to be like, because they can play the hired hand, because they can play the role of CEO, because they can play the role of the man of God and do all the other things to make people happy. Because they continue to do those things, can continue to do those things, they will. And while I believe there's a sense in which many of them are frustrated because they recognize the disconnect, to some degree, I think there's also a sense in which they realize that they're probably not up to snuff for, for being what they're supposed to be called to do. But they continue to do it because they know they can perform the job function of CEO. They know they can bang on the pulpit with the best of them. 
They can buy their sermons online if they want to, and many of them do. They don't simply have to share their life and their faith in Christ. They don't simply have to model it for others to follow. They don't have to be open about anything. They can just play the role of the professional. And they can do that because we first and foremost do not consider ourselves the family of God. We don't look at ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, we see ourselves as kind of a country club organization with people that we appoint to be over the entire thing. And then we demand that they jump through the hoops and perform the show for us because that's what we really want at the end of the day. And we do that because it frees ourselves from the responsibility of having to own up in ourselves what the scripture has called all of us as a priesthood of all believers to ultimately walk in. Because when we can simply deflect and say, well, I don't have to preach this week because, well, that's why I hired this guy. (laughs) You know? Or I don't have to go visit the sick because that's why I hired this guy. I don't have to sit there and listen to a friend who's going through a hard time. I can just refer him to the pastor because, well, that's what I hired this guy to do. And so I think, in many ways, and we shortchange ourselves and the callings that God has placed on all of us as Christians within the church, as individual men- members of the body of Christ who have responsibility to, to own up to supporting one another and exercising the gifts that God has given us individually for the benefit of others. We can simply toss our money in the offering plate Sunday after Sunday. We can punch the religious clock and go sing the hymns that the pastor prepared for us to sing every Sunday and listen to a man bang on a pulpit, organize the the deacons' meetings and all those fun things. We can simply deflect our responsibility because, well, we got a guy for that, right? (laughs) Who's fundamentally no different than the landscaper we've hired to cut our grass. We got a guy for it. But if we were to return to the church and conceiving it first and foremost as a family, as brothers and sisters of Christ who are simply trying to be better Christians and relating to each other as such and helping one another strengthen the weak and helping those other believers to grow in their faith and using the gifts that God has called and and placed inside of all of us to help do that, if we were as a church to conceive as our responsibility to do that together collectively as a body instead of simply just assigning it to a handful of people who put on the show of doing the ministry, then I think we could free our pastors from a lot of this stuff and all these burdens that we ultimately place on them. But because we don't own up to it, then we force these men and women to become the thing that God never called them to be. So, as a result, I've said all this to simply show, you know, this is the vision that I've always had for ministry and the way I believe ministry is supposed to be. And as a result, I can never in good faith and conscience bring myself to join the ranks of those who are quote-unquote in the ministry. 
And don't get me wrong, while I'm a very active volunteer in the life of my church and love and cherish my church, as well as those who fulfill the traditional ministry jobs that we have at the church, a lot of good people. There's also a very real sense in which I've had to answer my call to the ministry simply outside those traditional structures. And I believe if I were to try to fit into the mold, the traditional structure as we have it today, to sign up to be a pastor, even start my own church and denomination or whatever you want to call it, I'd probably find myself without a job very quickly. Because, like I said, people have a, a conception, whether they're in the church or not, of what a pastor is supposed to be. And I wouldn't be able to conform to that mold of what is expected today. And while I have a ton of respect for those people who do that today, like I said, family, friends, people I went to college with, a lot of people that I know. I probably know a lot more ministers than the average person in a church does. At the end of the day, I've simply not been able to bring myself to enter into this. And while, you know, again, I think maybe it's something that might happen one day, if, you know, something I really prayed about hard and and the right opportunity came along, I might answer that. But because it hasn't, I just continue to do to bring my loaves and fishes and to be involved in the life of the church to the degree that I have been, to share with others what I know and have learned about Jesus, to share something of my life along the way, to sit down and break bread with people in my own kitchen, in my own house, or at coffee houses or at restaurants, to invite people into my life, to share something of the gospel of what I know, and to walk in the sense of calling that I believe that I have and that I'm walking in even today, however imperfectly I may walk in it. I believe I'm ultimately walking in what God has called me, even if nobody ever said, here's the Here's the title, and here's the paycheck to go with it. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, episode 160, in which I thought I would explain why I didn't go into the ministry after Bible college and seminary. If you've enjoyed this podcast and it's resonated with you, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com, or you can reach out to me on places like Facebook and Twitter. Um, for Facebook and Twitter, you can go to jimmystable.com, and you'll find links to both Facebook and Twitter that way. If you haven't had the opportunity to subscribe to this podcast yet, go to jimmystable.com slash subscribe and you'll find uh, all the fun different ways you can subscribe to this podcast, whether it's through Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, or even just gold, good old-fashioned weekly email updates through a newsletter. Um, you can sign up that way. If you haven't had your chance to, to leave your glowing five-star review, don't do it. <laughs> no, go over to Apple and Spotify and leave your glowing five-star review um, and uh, let people know that you've enjoyed this podcast. Everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. Take care, everybody. God bless, and have a good one. That's all I have to say about that. That's the right on, man. You said it all.